Well, I wonder tonight, what makes you angry? Is there anything that really gets up your goat? Is that, is that a true saying? I think it is. You know, it really gets up your nose. How about when something that you rely on for your daily routine breaks? Does that get you angry? I know uh, it does for me sometimes. It's something, you know, I'm talking about something significant. Like uh, we just found that our little car uh, blew a head gasket just a little while ago. So all the hassle of either deciding whether we get it fixed or where we'll take it and all, just wrecks the whole routine that I really like. I think just a head gasket can get me a bit wild, you know? Don't know who at or what, you know, but it, you get upset. What about when a mobile phone breaks or when, you know, your tyre gets a, a flat tyre on your bike or, or your trains are cancelled or you have to catch buses when you want to catch a train, you know? What makes you angry? Perhaps it's when you've got new clothes and they just get dirty. Uh, it's beautiful new dress and there's a stain right on the front. Perhaps when the lecturer gives you more work than you thought you were in for for the semester. Or when the canine's closed. Maybe for you, you're a bit more deeper than me. And the hurts are sometimes much more real uh, for you. Like perhaps when someone who you really thought you could trust abuses that trust and uh, you thought you could trust them. Maybe it's when you see such an imbalance in wealth in our world, the poor and the rich. When you see a whole countries being ruled by dictators that rule unfairly. Tonight, uh, as we come to this next passage in uh, the book of John, we're going to be coming and we're going to ask ourselves, what really makes God angry? What makes Jesus angry? What gets up his goat? What makes him wild? So why don't you turn with me now to John chapter 2. We're going to read from John chapter 2 verses 12 right to 25, verse 25. We're going to be thinking, wow, what is it that gets Jesus real angry? Because what gets him angry should make us angry too. John chapter 2 and verses 12 to 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house 
will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build the temple and you, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was, was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man for he knew what was in a man. What makes Jesus angry? Tonight as we look into these pages, you'll remember that we've been looking at John's gospel together. And we've seen in the first passages that we looked at that the Messiah had arrived. And we remember those passages where where the disciples looked at him and said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think tonight we're going to see that Jesus is not only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he's a lion. He's a roaring lion that is mad when certain things take place. He's not just the Lamb of God who takes away the world, but he's a lamb that will not tolerate things he can't stand. When Jesus uh, saw what he disliked, he reacted. A few weeks ago now when James Punton finished his message, he he finished by saying that Jesus was more than they had expected. Uh, In the last pages, last verses of chapter um, One, verse 50 there, Jesus said, You believe because I told you, I saw you under a fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. Then he added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven opening and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So as John opens his gospel, we're seeing all these images, the Lamb of God. And now we're seeing that Jesus is more than what the disciples and his followers were understanding. He's actually uh, saying that, Uh, he's more than what these disciples knew. One day they would see uh, the angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Then in the passages in between, uh, the the chapter just before, Jesus had shown in the start of chapter 2 that he was one who was able to do incredible miracles. He turned the water into wine. And we see that he's more than people had expected. And today, tonight, as we look at this passage, the question of who is Jesus becomes even more clearer. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the one who revealed his glory through the miracle of turning the water into wine. And now we see he's a lion. He's got teeth. He roars when things that can't stand happen. You know, it's almost 
the time for the Jewish Passover in this passage, and Jesus went from the wedding at Canaan uh, to the Galilee lakeside of Capernaum, where he spent time, the, passages, the passage says, uh, staying there with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And from there, he went up to Jerusalem. Um, Canaan was, was up high in the highlands. Capernaum was down uh, right next to the Sea of Galilee. And so it was a downward travel, and then from there down to Jerusalem as well, went up to Jerusalem as well from there. Jerusalem is mentioned here. It was the place where the Messiah was expected to return. Jerusalem was both a religious and the political seat of Palestine. It was where all the big religious things happened. Jerusalem was where the temple was located, and Jesus was now making his way there for the Jewish Passover. Many Jewish families uh, would travel from all over the world to Jerusalem for key festivals, and, and the temple was this incredible, imposing site. Just to go there would have been incredible. Uh, it, was, it sat on a hill that overlooked the whole city, and it was true that Solomon had built uh, the first temple on the same site almost a thousand years earlier in 959 BC. But uh, the, his temple had actually been destroyed by the Babylonians. That, you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 25. And the temple was rebuilt in 515 BC. And Herod the Great had enlarged it and remodeled it. And as Jesus made his way, towards Jerusalem, as he walked along the roads, he would have noticed as he was walking that the closer he got to Jerusalem, the more um, congested the roads would have become. There would have been people uh, everywhere the closer he got to Jerusalem. And when he entered the gates of the city and approached the cream and gold of, this, of the great temple, the crowds would have become so... Uh, crowded. It would have been almost uh, impossible to, to walk as people gathered and flocked from everywhere. There would have been uh, people that were around the outsides of the temple that were selling trinkets or souvenirs or things for people to buy all around the, the immediate area outside the temple. And verse 14 says that in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. And what Jesus saw as he entered through the crowds, what he laid his eyes on made him angry. From Jesus' point of view, the things that he looked at were an outrage. The money changers claimed that their business was a necessity. They, uh, when people had come from all over the world, all different uh, places, uh, they claimed that it was a necessity that they be there to exchange uh, the currency that people have into Jewish currency because foreign money was not acceptable for offerings in the temple. So what the authorities tell us is that the money changers charged as much as two hours of, working, of a working man's wage in those days to change over and exchange half a shekel. So they charged 
the same amount for every half shekel that they gave in return for a larger coin. So if a man came in with a two shekel piece, that would be like four halves of a shekel. That would cost him his entire day's wage just to exchange this money at the temple. And this is what brought a lot of money into the, into the temple, into the coffers. Now, history reveals that there was someone who came in and stole and took an incredible amount of money from the temple. So they had lots of money through charging people to exchange foreign currency so that they could use the Jewish currency in the temple. But that, that's not all. The sellers and the ex- inspectors that were there in the temple uh, were there and sold all the sacrifices that would take place in the temple. So what would happen was uh, these guys who were the sellers and inspectors of the, the things to be sacrificed would spend 18 months, we're told, in a, on a farm where they would learn to distinguish what uh, animals were, uh, were clean and what animals were unclean. So when you walked into the temple, you were in the hands of these experts who could tell you what sacrifices you need to make the right sacrifices that were clean and that were not clean. And they, they were people uh, that had a good thing going on, those ex- inspectors. If they didn't approve an animal, it would not be approved. And you'd have to purchase uh, other animals for the sacrifice. And extortion was common in this temple precinct, in this area. To make it worse, uh, Annas, the high priest, was behind the whole thing. He was behind uh, you know, the, the hiring out of different stalls for the money changes. For those that were selling sacrifices, he was, he was selling franchises for people so that they could participate in this. So when Jesus came into the temple he found a religious circus going on. As he looked around, as his eyes scanned the the great court of the Gentiles, he saw sheep, oxen, fowl, and everything that goes with them. You know, the smells, the sounds, all the things uh, that, that he would have seen with his eyes. There was bartering, there was haggling, over the, you know, the weight of a coin and whether more should be charged or less and there was a commotion that was going on and there was noise and there was all this uh, you know, busyness in the temple and it would have been overwhelming to have heard it. To Jesus, this was unacceptable. It was unacceptable. And the following verses only kind of give us a, dra- a-, a glimpse of the drama that occurred. See, it says that Jesus uh, picked up cords. He made a whip out of the cords. And so he would have picked up some cords and he would have grabbed them and he would have tied them together to make them into a whip. And then he began to cleanse the temple. We kind of... uh, just breeze over those words. But how would it be if I just started, like, kicking this over? It would be shocking to you, wouldn't it? 
If I just started grabbing a table and throwing it over, the, the kind of what's going on would come into each and every one of us. And this is what happened. Jesus began to cleanse the temple. Tables crashed and money jangled over the floors as Jesus started to drive out the money changers and drive out the sellers and the inspectors of the temple. And Jesus' words were, get these out of here. You know, he's mad. Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? He's mad as can be. The lion is roaring. The lamb is mad. I imagine that Jesus, with the whip in his hand, was causing people to scamper and to run. You know, I can imagine people trying to grab hold of as much of their money bags as they can as they were trying to get away from him. You know, and, and as he came closer, you know, people grabbing some of their animals and trying to get out of the way. Some people have really tried to water down what happened here. Like commentators who, who talk about this passage. For instance, one man said, catching up some reeds that served as bedding for cattle, he twisted them into the semblance of a scourge, which could hurt neither man nor beasts. And he did not use it. What's going on there? You know, the Bible doesn't actually say who felt the sting of Jesus' whip. But if you look at this account and the account of the cleansing of the temple and the other Gospels, and you consider the drama of the situation, to me, I think it's unthinkable that Jesus didn't use that whip. You know, I think what many people have done have sort of latched onto some elements of who Jesus is and kind of projected them into who Jesus is and said, he's just this, but he's not that. You know what I mean? I mean, when I was growing up in Sunday school, I got the most beautiful picture of Jesus to put inside my Bible. And he was as clean, you know, as he looked like he just had Johnson's baby powder put on him, you know. And he was shining. And his face looked so beautiful and loving. You know, and, and, and many people have sort of, adopted a kind, cuddly Jesus who, uh, who is so kind of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who wouldn't hurt a fly, who's just so nice that we can all, you know, put our arms around him and, and hug him and we can take him along for the ride in our lives. Kind of God that Jesus who pleads with us, you know, to give our lives, to follow him, please, Please come to me. And we can kind of think that that's what Jesus is like, almost as if he's weak and begging us to follow him. And, you know, don't hear me wrong. Jesus is meek and mild. In fact, he describes himself in that way in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29, when he invites those who have burdens and who are weary and heavy laden to, to come to him. Many verses do teach that Jesus is gentle, and kind. But if we just take those images of him that we like and say that's all who Jesus is, 
what we can do is come with a wrong view of, of Jesus. We can make him to be just what we like him to be. Many verses teach that, but we've got to balance those views with Jesus being our Lord as a lion. For instance, I'm thinking about in, in Mark 3 and verse 5, the passage that's describing the man who had a paralysed hand and Jesus looked around at those who were questioning whether he should heal him on the Sabbath or not. And, and the passage says and he looked around at them indignant, you know, with anger. He looked around at them. Other times, Jesus' anger was like a swelling rage. There was, there was nothing gentle in the fierce message he sent to Herod either. He said, go and tell that fox. Go talk to him. Luke 13, 23. And when he said to Peter, get out of my sight, Satan. Matthew 16, 23. No, the scene described here is a wild scene. Things are flying everywhere. Something's got up Jesus' goat. Something's made him mad. He's applying the whip to those who aren't moving fast enough. I think the interesting thing to note is that in these moments, Jesus is just as godlike as what he was when he hung on the cross. Let me say that again. As Jesus had the whip in his hand and was cleansing the temple, he's just as godlike as when he was dying on the cross and willingly dying for you and I. He was displaying a kind of great underlying truth that love presupposes hatred. A love for the downtrodden, for the poor, for the oppressed, for those that are being ripped off, uh, misled, for those that are, are suffering. A, a, a hatred for those conditions that cause that comes out because of a love for those people. When you love people, when you see them hurt, there's a hatred for those conditions. And that truth is, is seen in the lives of many, many great people down the ages. You can just think of them. People who gave their lives. I'm thinking of people like Martin Luther King Jr., who had such a strong love for people and a strong hatred for the way in which black people were oppressed and demoralised and demeaned by segregation, that the, the love that he had for people drove him because of the hatred of what he was seeing. I'm thinking of William Wilberforce, who saw the inhumane ways that slaves were treated. And because he knew that this was wrong and he loved people and didn't want them to be hurt, it drove him. You know, I think you can tell a lot about a person by what they hate. 
it says a lot about someone by what they hate. So what has been revealed here in this passage is incredibly important for us. What are the hates and the loves of God? What causes the lamb to become a lion? In particular, what is at the core of Jesus' anger? The root of Christ's hatred. What's going on here? And how can it affect yours and my life? You know, I think what makes Jesus most angry is anything that takes away from the glory of God. Anything that takes away from the glory of God makes Jesus angry. These people were denying the holiness of God by turning a place where he was to be honoured into a marketplace, by turning a place where people would come to worship him into a place where they would profit, where they would make money from, where they would rip off people in his house. The very house, Jesus was thinking, where my father is to be honoured, where, my, my, where God is to be glorified, is being turned in to a marketplace where people are ripping innocent people off that have come to worship my God, our God. Anything that takes away from the glory of God makes Jesus angry. Jesus' whip comes against those who detract from worshipping God. By doing things, anything that takes away from us coming to know his glory. Oh, this puts a lot on me as a pastor. I mean, there are people who were in the temple who were overseeing the running of the temple that had turned, allowed the temple to be a place where Anything but the true worship of God was taking place. And here is the high priest whose whole role was to help to lead people to worship God at the temple. And he's been now using it to make money and income and, and do things that would, would you know, try and make a profit and turning the whole place into anything but a place of God. For me, when I read these pages and I think, oh, I don't want to make Jesus angry. I'm a pastor of this church to take very seriously the role to ensure that when we get up to, when I get to preach and teach, when I, we lead together and we come together, that this is a place where God is honoured and that nothing comes in the way of honouring God. If you play an instrument up here, if you lead in, in singing, if you're a worship leader, you want to make Jesus angry? Just take your role lightly. Kind of get your view of God and put him in a little box here. You know, diminish him, just like we can sometimes diminish Jesus. And, you know, they were sitting there in the place of holy worship and they were, you know, ripping people off. They had God in a box and they were putting him there. And if, if we want to get Jesus angry, then I think we just... 
create God in our image. God who doesn't really care if we just, you know, come before him with our hearts not right. Come before him just thinking that God's fortunate to have us on his team. And come before him thinking about how great we look tonight or how people will be thinking that I'm playing great or I'm singing great or I'm worship leading great or... You know, it comes back to you too as we gather here together. Anything that detracts from the glory of God, the way you come to worship can detract from the glory of God. I mean, you can come in here uh, with expectations that God's not going to do anything tonight. He's not going to speak to me. Or you can be thinking that God is just like... A God who never works or who never acts or who never shows himself to be who he is. And then some of the uh, great words that we have, have, have sung tonight, I was thinking about them. You know, the splendour of the king, clothed, clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide. It trembles at his voice. Sometimes we can stand before our God and not tremble one bit. And we can be thinking, I wonder what I'm going to do after this. Who else is here? Oh. Gee, I think I'd like to worship God a bit more. I'm a bit worried about what people around me would think. Or, you know, we can do things that diminish the glory of God in our worship. I think we can also diminish the glory of God by allowing sin to come right into our lives and detract us from worshipping God. We can tolerate sin in our life. We can think that God will just uh, come and meet with us while we're doing the equivalent of what they were doing, ripping people off or, or just thinking that God's not going to do anything if we do our own thing and meet our own needs at worship. And Jesus wants to take the whip on us tonight. I mean, he wants to remind us that God is God And that he's not just a figment of our imagination. And that we come into his presence. He's to be worshipped and honoured for who he is. Sometimes we can really uh, be so familiar, I think, you know, we can... We can imagine that he's our friend, our mate. You know, Jesus is our mate and our pal. And we can kind of think that he's just so accessible that we, he is. He calls us to come, but it's a great privilege to come. But we can kind of treat him like, um, you know, just he's always there for us. He's a buddy. He's along for the ride. And we'll just take him along because he doesn't cause any demands on us, which is just completely wrong. 
Jesus wants to take a whip at that. So he gets angry and he, he cleanses the marketplace. I just want to ask you, just as we move from this point into the next, you know, what is it in your life that you might be allowing to detract from the glory of God? Is it your attitude as you come to worship? Is it sin in your life? Is it that you haven't been reading the Bible and actually you've just been thinking that God is who you think he is rather than what the scriptures say about him? Tonight we've seen unequivocally that Jesus is a, is a man who gets so angry that God gets angry. What happens next is in verses 18 to 21. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show to prove to us your authority? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you were going to raise it in three days? For the temple he had spoken of was his body. Christ was talking here about his resurrection. And through his resurrection, he would be gloriously vindicted. People would see who he really was. There's a secondary meaning here. Jesus, like no other, like no other man, was the temple of God. In Colossians 2, verse 9, it says, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives. In the temple, when Solomon first dedicated, the presence of God just filled the, the, the temple. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lived in bodily form. He was full of God. He was God, like no other temple has ever been. In Christ, he's now gone into heaven. But he's left us here on earth. And the following verses in Colossians uh, say, and you have been given the fullness in Christ. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. What an incredible, incredible thought. The significance of what happened is even more apparent now. Jesus 
we're saying that he is the temple. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And us who have come to know him and put our trust in him, Jesus, God, has come to dwell in us through his spirit. And the question is tonight, how's it going? Perhaps there was once a time when there was a fullness in our lives of God's presence. We were so excited and overflowing with the joy of knowing him and trusting him every day. Like uh, the holies of holies, you know, where the, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, the, the calming of God's presence. It's just we, we just sensed that God was with us when we put our trust in him. Perhaps something's happened, though, because instead of our hearts being temples, perhaps we've, we've brought them to be something else. Perhaps we've allowed other things to come in to our hearts. Perhaps we've you know, bought a house and the savings that needs to go into that has been incredible. Or perhaps we've made decisions about what we will study and that has just overwhelmed us and that has taken up all our thinking and all our planning and everything. Or perhaps we've allowed a lust or uh, greed <coughs> or destructive behaviours to, to come into our hearts and once we allowed God to come in and to dwell in all his fullness, we, like those in the temple, have just a allowed other things to fill up that part. And maybe tonight you sense Jesus saying, child, my, my daughter, my son, my one who put your trust and faith in me, how did you get so to a point where you've let my glory again be destroyed, be taken away? And perhaps as you see the, the Jesus clearing the temples and, and, and turning up the tables and saying, you know, I am the one who wants to live in you and dwell in you and I don't want anything else there. Maybe you feel like he's picking up some of those things in your life. And tonight the lamb is roaring for you. What is it, an addiction, a sin? Maybe you've just become so familiar with God that you've forgotten his glory. He's, he's saying, let me in. He's screaming, let me in. Perhaps in these moments we might just want to respond to him. And it might be just in these moments of quietness as you picture Jesus clearing the temple. Why don't you just admit some of the things that are in your heart, your life tonight. Things that you've taken back. Maybe fears that you're really anxious about, that you know you should just give over to him again. Maybe sin, maybe attitudes that you've had when it comes to worshipping him.
just acknowledge those and let Jesus just whip them away through his death on the cross, through all that he's done. And why don't you just tell him in these moments that you belong to him. He's your Lord and that he's your saviour and that you'll allow him to have first place in your life no matter what. And you just say that however you know how. And God, as we just see in your heart uh, for us and, and for God, as we go this week, we just want to shine your glory. We want to live our lives in such a holy way that people will see you in us. Have your way, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just wondering if in these remaining moments that we have that you could just take out the blue card. It should be in your uh, news sheet right now. And it might be that tonight you just want to respond. Uh, maybe you're making a recommitment and uh, you might just want to tick on the right-hand side, I'm returning to the Lord after wandering away. Maybe you're just saying, I'm just taking the, allowing Jesus to whip out some of the, the things that have been no good tonight. Maybe there's a prayer point. Maybe there's something you realise it's going to be really hard for, to get rid of and just to give to Jesus. And tonight you might want to come and pray afterwards or, or just pray now, write a prayer request. Or Why don't we just spend some moments responding now to what God's saying to us. Let's just... Spend some moments as you complete the card or, or respond just however you know to what God's saying to you. God, just take it all. Take all of us. Uh, take our offerings, our gifts, our tithes. Take our lives, Lord. Uh, they're yours. Uh, we give them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. And as